Hey, good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, hey, if you're new with us, uh, we are walking through a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and so you can go ahead and open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we have one for you uh, on that table over there. If you didn't grab one on your way in, there's some black hardback ones, uh, and you can go ahead and grab that and keep that. That's our gift to you as a church if you don't own a Bible. But 1 Corinthians 4 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. And over the past few weeks, uh, we've been contrasting the world's wisdom uh, with God's wisdom and talking about how often we uh, follow the wisdom of the world and what the world looks at as valuable and successful and important and worth pursuing. And uh, one of the areas that we do that with uh, is leadership. Uh, our American culture really values and emphasizes leadership. It's really kind of looked for everywhere in our culture. And we've really followed that in the church, so much so that there's really been kind of a cottage industry around Christian leadership uh, that has popped up. And what I mean by that is that there's just a ton of books on Christian leadership being pumped out that you can read. There's podcasts that you can listen to. There's conferences on leadership that you can attend. There's cohorts that you can step into. There's coaches that you can hire uh, to help you with your leadership. It's really uh, all over the place. And while I think some of that focus is a little bit overblown and reflects more on our culture and how we're kind of following that, uh, I don't think that that focus is totally wrong. That focus on leadership, it really does exist for a reason, and it's because leadership really does matter. Uh, we value it too. Here at Veritas, one of our core values is leadership development because we think part of what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus is growing as a leader. Uh, leadership is primarily about influence, and, and all of us, whether you have uh, a position or a title, you do have influence over someone else, uh, and so in that sense, you really are a leader. And, and we want to influence people towards Jesus and not away from Him, and so as followers of Jesus, it really matters that we get it right. Like, you, you are a leader, and you should want to grow in this, and you should want to do it well. Uh, but what we're going to see this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is that so often we also copy and follow the world's wisdom when it comes to leadership as well. So often in the phrase Christian leadership, the word that's doing all the work is leadership, and, and you could drop Christian off and nobody would really know that it's gone. Uh, but if we're going to walk in the wisdom of God, if we're going to walk in God's wisdom, then Christian has to be the word doing the work uh, in the phrase Christian leadership. Christianity and Jesus have to transform the way we think about leadership. And 1 Corinthians 4 uh, is going to show us how. And, and so if I could sum it up, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's going to give us a few things to focus on if we want to be Christian leaders uh, and overall, he's going to tell us that if we want to be Christian leaders, we should focus on being faithful stewards of the gospel message with our lives and with our words. And so let's look at this together. We're going to make our way all the way through chapter 4, but we'll read it uh, in a few different sections. And so look at the first five verses of chapter 4 with me, starting in verse 1, the very word of Christ to us today. It speaks to us like this. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So the first thing Paul calls us to focus on as leaders in this chapter is to focus on being faithful. Uh, Up to this point in the letter, he's been talking about how the Corinthians viewed their leaders, and here in verse 1 of chapter 4, he really kind of sums up towards the main point that he's been building in these first four chapters, and he says, hey, this is how you should think about us. This is what you should consider us as. This is what Christian leaders are. Uh, And once again, Paul is talking specifically here about their leaders, and so this is what you should expect of us. This is how you should consider us and evaluate us as your leaders here at Veritas, But, but this is for all of us. This is what Christian leaders are, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, a servant is not a very glamorous role, right? Because as a servant, you really don't get to call the shots, you take the orders, One of the things I think that this means is that as a Christian leader, there should really be no task that you think is below you. As pastors, there should be no task or person that we think is below us. If we do, we've totally lost what it means to be a leader in Jesus' kingdom because this is what leaders are. They're servants. We are called to serve, to get low, to sacrifice of ourselves so that others might be built up and others might flourish. That's what it means to be a leader in Jesus' kingdom. But he doesn't just say that we're servants. He also says that we're stewards, and stewards specifically of the mysteries of God. Now, we've seen in the letter, when Paul talks about the mysteries of God, he's not talking about something mysterious. Uh, He's talking about the gospel. Because the gospel was in some sense hidden, but now has been revealed in the coming of Jesus. And so you and I are stewards of the gospel message. And a steward is a manager of someone else's house and property. Think of it kind of like a butler. I'm sure none of us had one of those growing up. Maybe you were real bougie and you did. Uh, More power to you, I guess, if you did. Uh, But all of us have seen a butler on the movies and kind of know what they do. Right? Often the butler has a really active hand in helping kind of oversee the kids and the management of the household. The owner of that house has put them in charge of all of their stuff, and they're responsible to manage that household well for, their, uh, for the owner of that household. Like as the steward, as the butler, it's, it's not their stuff, but they are going to be evaluated and judged based on how they handled it and how they managed it because they've been given that oversight. The, the same thing is true of us as stewards. Like, it, it's not our message, it's God's message, but we are called to proclaim it and, and, and proclaim the life change that it brings. And look again at verse 2, uh, the measure of our success, what's required of stewards is, is that we be found faithful. So do we carry out the responsibilities that God has given to us? Were we faithful to the gospel message with our lives and with our words? That, that's what we will be judged on. Were we faithful? I've heard somebody else compare it to a mailman. You know, as a mailman, your job is not to uh, write the mail or decide what gets put into the mail or change the mail. Your job is to deliver the mail, and, and you're going to be evaluated on that job based on how well you handle and carry out that responsibility. Uh, and, and notice here in the text, God is the one who's the judge of this. He is the one who's given us the gospel message to steward. We're his stewards. He's the one that we're going to answer to. 
And so Paul moves here in verse 3 to say, hey, it's really not a big deal what you think of me or what any other human court thinks of me. Uh, And then he goes even further and says, in fact, it's really not even that big of a deal what I think of myself because I'm not going to be judging myself. God is the one who will judge me. Now, the reality is, uh, is that we're all judging each other and judging ourselves really constantly, kind of all the time, right? Uh, You don't have to answer. I know that you'd be lying if you said no anyways, right? I I mean, I promise you, if you were honest, you'd admit that even this morning as you came in, you've been judging people, evaluating them based on what they're wearing or how their kids were behaving or not behaving or if they were late or and on and on. And because we know that we're constantly doing that with others and others are constantly doing that with us, uh, so often we're constantly judging ourselves in light of others' judgment of us. Like, did I do this well enough? Did I present well enough before them? Are they going to talk about me after this? What do they think of me? Do they like me? Do they accept me? And I think that if we're honest, most of us, myself included, would admit that we spend way too much time thinking about what others think of us and their evaluations of us, that we allow it to consume way too much of our mental energy and drive so much of the decisions that we make. Well, the good news is that God, through the Apostle Paul, is offering us a way out here. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what other people think about you or even what you think about yourself. It really doesn't matter if you measure up in their eyes because they're not going to be the ones judging you. Notice again verse 4, he says, it is the Lord who judges me. Now, unfortunately, the truth is that you're just not going to be able to get people to stop judging you and making evaluations of you. But what you can do is stop putting so much weight in their judgment of you because the reality is when it comes to ultimate judgment, you're not going to be standing before them. You're not going to be giving an account to them. You're going to be standing before God and giving an account to God. And here's what the gospel can do. The gospel can free us up to pursue this faithfulness that Jesus is calling us to here because the gospel tells us that when we stand before God in judgment, that the verdict is not in doubt, that our destination is not in doubt. If we have believed in Jesus, then we have received the verdict over our lives already, and the verdict is righteous, not guilty, justified before God forever. Our salvation is not in jeopardy. But, but the judgment that Paul's talking about here specifically is about rewards. Look at again at the end of verse 5. He says, then each one will receive their commendation from God. And, and so here's what you can know. Like my salvation is not in jeopardy based on other people's judgment of me. And my commendation from God actually isn't either. Like the standard is faithfulness and you and I will not be the judges of that. God will. And so this is how it can free us up. If I'm not going to stand before you in judgment on that final day, if I'm not going to be the one judging myself on that final day, then I'm freed up to start living that way now. Like you and I can live in a way that shows that God is the one who judges us, that his opinion over our lives matters most, that he is the one we're trying to please, that we are his steward and not other people's steward. And listen, this is not Paul giving us a license to never listen to criticism. I think anybody who stops listening to criticism has stopped growing as a leader. In fact, I think this actually frees us up to better listen and hear criticism 
Because so often you and I won't actually sit with others' criticism of us because we've so tied our identity uh, to being seen as successful at our job or as a parent or whatever this thing is that they're criticizing about us that if we actually sat with it, it would crush us. But the gospel can free us up because now we can actually listen to criticism and wrestle with how it can make us more faithful Because that criticism does not put your salvation in jeopardy, nor is it the ultimate judge of your faithfulness, because that person's not the judge of you. The Lord is the judge of you. And so what you and I should be concerned with right now is not what do other people think about us or even what do we think about us, but, but are we being faithful with what the Lord has given us? Because notice, again, the pa- what the passage didn't say is that it's required of stewards that they be found successful. Or, or impressive, or well-known. Like, like, hear me, God is not calling you to success. He is not calling you to impressive, big, amazing things. Even if those things happen, He's calling you to faithfulness. That's what you and I are going to be judged on. Were you faithful to love the people that God gave you to love? Were you faithful to do the work that God called you to do? Were you faithful with the gospel message that He gave you to proclaim? And and hear me, this faithfulness is not something that can be measured in a week or two. Uh, This faithfulness is measured over the long haul. It's what we focus on. You and I, as Christian leaders, we should focus on being faithful to God, on doing what He has called us to do today, and then the next day, and then the day after that, because He's the one who will judge us, and He is the one we're living for. We're His stewards, we're not other stewards. That leads us to the next thing that we're called to focus on in the text. We should focus on believing uh, faithful eschatology. And don't let your eyes glaze over. Don't check out on me. Uh, I promise you it will define what that means. If you don't know what that means, it's totally okay. Uh, And we'll get there in just a second. But look at verse 6 real quick in the text with me. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So Paul says everything that he's been talking about, he's applied it to Apollos and himself because the Corinthians are using them to divide themselves over against one another. The measurements they're using to judge Paul and Apollos are foolish, worldly measurements, and it leads them to being puffed up against each other. They're jockeying for status and position, which is the polar opposite of what the gospel calls us to. This is what Paul means when he says, I'm writing this that you might learn not to go, go beyond what is written. If you think about all the Old Testament passages he's quoted so far in the letter, they're all about the foolishness of looking to human pride and human strength and human wisdom and human power because those things are meaningless in God's eyes. But when the Corinthians look at their leaders, they are doing this. They're using the standards of the world to judge and evaluate them. And in response, Paul gives them once again the gospel. And listen, I'll just tell you, Verse 7 will change your life if you let it. I mean, this verse has been just huge throughout church history as grace and the gospel has kind of re-triumphed in the life of the church. 
Uh, This verse was huge for Augustine in the 400s when he was arguing against the Pelagians who taught that that mankind was basically good and that we could save ourselves by just trying a little bit harder and knowing a little bit more. Uh, It was massive for Martin Luther in the 1500s when he confronted some of the ways that the Roman Catholic Church of his day had corrupted the gospel with things like indulgences, uh, which the, the church taught if you gave some of your money and bought these indulgences, it would get your loved ones out of suffering. Uh, and penance, things that you were supposed to do that could wash away your sins and earn you merit before God. But all of that gets crushed in the weight of this verse because look again at what Paul says. What do you have that you didn't receive? And the answer is clear, nothing, nothing. Like literally everything in your life is a gift. Everything in your life is a gift of, because of the grace of God and the work of Jesus, not your own. And, and look, I know, I know some of you, when you hear that, you think, yeah, maybe that's true about salvation, but that's not true about other things in my life, because those other things, like, I've worked hard for those. I've earned those. Okay, well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, let's say that your smarts got you to where you're at today. Well, who gave you the brain to do that with? I'll give you a hint. Uh, It was God. I mean, think about even the language we use to describe people when we say, oh, that person is so gifted and talented. Like, did you hear that? Gifted and talented is the language of something that's given to you. You are given gifts. You're given talents. You don't earn those. Uh, Or maybe you would say, well, it's because of my hard work and discipline. That's what's got me to where I'm at today. Okay, well, who gave you that work ethic? Because you realize a lot of people don't have that same work ethic, Uh, And if you're honest with yourself, you'd probably admit that you didn't just wake up one day and decide to have that sort of work ethic. Uh, Either it was instilled in you by your parents, who you didn't choose, uh, or it was instilled in you by a teacher or by a coach or a life circumstance that happened to you, which you also didn't choose. And, and, And think of how many doors had to open up just right for you to be where you're at today, doors that maybe did not open up for somebody else. Like the idea of a self-made man or a self-made woman is just a stupid myth. Anybody who thinks that is like a guy who was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Like you, you just haven't earned anything. Everything in your life is a gift. And so Paul is saying if everything good in your life is a gift from God, then it's stupid for you to boast as if it's something you earned yourself. It's anti-gospel. And it leads you to misunderstand what you're called to focus on in this life. This is where Paul goes next in verse 8 as he gets a little bit sarcastic with him. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
You can tell that Paul's being sarcastic because of verse 9 when he says, I wish you guys really were kings and queens because then we might get to share in the benefits of that rule with you instead of being treated like we're being treated out here. I mean, Paul's mocking them. He's saying, you guys are so obsessed with being somebody in this life. You're so wise and strong and honorable and powerful, aren't you? Now, remember, it's not actually like they are any of these things. In chapter 1, he said that not many of the Corinthians were noble or important or strong or powerful in the eyes of the world. But they so desperately want to be. And in doing so, it's causing them to get the gospel completely backwards. This is what I mean by saying we need to focus on believing faithful eschatology. Uh, eschatology is just a big word that means teaching about the last days or the last things uh, or the end times. Uh, in a lot of ways, eschatology has been a doctrine that's really been taken from us in the church because if, if we've got experience with it, most of the experience that we have with it uh, is people getting kind of weird, breaking out the prophecy charts and talking about locusts and Apache helicopters uh, and making really poorly done left behind movies. Uh, which I'll just tell you, like, I checked this week. It's not on Netflix anymore, but it is on Amazon Prime. If you get bored one night, uh, just go rent the Left Behind movie with Nick Cage and just see how much of it you can get through. Uh, it, it's real rough. But, but look, eschatology, uh, it, it's not a cause for speculation, and it's not a cause for freaking out. It's actually a source uh, of deep hope. And, and the problem the Corinthians have is not that they have a bad eschatology, like wrong beliefs about the end times. It's that they have no eschatology. They're still living like the pagans who think that this life is it. They have no future hope in Jesus, and it's causing them to try to get everything in this life. And this fundamentally misunderstands the gospel and the importance of gospel eschatology, like gospel doctrine around the end times. Because what the gospel tells us about eschatology can really simply be summed up in the truth that Jesus wins. Jesus has already accomplished the victory, and the day is coming when he will return to usher in the fullness of that victory. And so you and I live now in what a lot of people have called the already and the not yet. Jesus has already come, and he's won the victory for us, but the fullness of what Jesus has purchased for us is not yet here. And so in this life, while we wait on the fullness of what Jesus has purchased for us, we're going to follow the pattern that Jesus laid out in the gospel, suffering before glory. We're going to experience suffering and hardship and mistreatment in this life, and then we'll experience the fullness of glory with Jesus afterwards. Like, this life is not it. It's not all that there is, and it's not it. Like, it's not what we should be focusing on and putting our hope in. You know, it's not like the way that we so often talk. When we talk about this life as if it's the real life, and then uh, the, what happens after we die as the afterlife, uh, it's much more like this life is pre-life, and life with Jesus in eternity, that's real life. Like, that's what we were saved for. But the reason that we so often struggle when suffering and hardship comes our way is because we fundamentally do think that this life is it that this is the fullness of what Jesus has purchased for us, that we really should be experiencing the fullness of glory here, that if we just follow Jesus well enough, then things should generally go well for us. It goes back to verse 6 and 7, because we feel like, you know, maybe we've kind of earned that for ourselves. And I want to help you. It's just not true. Because what Paul is laying out here, the, the way he's saying that the apostles are being treated in the world They're just following in the footsteps of Jesus. 
Jesus was a man sentenced to death, paraded before people as a criminal, homeless and persecuted, treated like the scum of the world. Now, if we follow him, why would we expect to be treated like royalty in this life? Now, if you follow Jesus, you're probably not going to be somebody in this life. And that's kind of the point. You were never supposed to be. Like, we have to realize the Christian life is suffering before glory, and we need to put our focus on believing faithful eschatology that Jesus really does win, that he will return, that our future life and hope with him is the real life that we're looking for. And so here's what I want to challenge you with. I think this is just an area that most of us, myself included, have just neglected the Bible's teaching. Because while most of us in here, you know, are, are really not super rich, uh, many of us are in a comfortable spot. And, and when you're in a comfortable spot, it's really easy to start to believe and start to live like this life is it and to put all your focus and your hope on, on what you can get out of this life. And, and so I think the Bible would challenge us to do a few things here. One, we need to actively contemplate our, our future hope in Jesus uh, in heaven. Like you need to actively meditate on and think about and pray about your hope in Jesus for the future. And you've got to be intentional about this. You've got to set aside times where you're going to do this when you pray. And, and then second, to help us do that, I think the Bible and then the witness of church history would call us to engage uh, in some practices of renunciation. Uh, what I mean by that is just engaging in some practices that help you do that, that help you renounce your hope and your trust in the things of this world and help you actively cultivate a hope in your future hope and life with Jesus. And, and I can't give you specifics here of, of what you're supposed to do here. I'm going to lay out some examples, but this is for you to wrestle through on your own with the Spirit's leading. Uh, but I'll give you a few examples of this. One is with giving. Practicing renunciation with giving looks like giving in a way that becomes truly sacrificial to you, giving to the point where it hurts, where you're forced to have to trust Jesus, where you have to say, I have to trust Jesus here because keeping my money to myself in this would help me feel so much more stable and so much more secure. It's giving in a way that forces you to recognize my hope is in Jesus, not in my money or the things that my money can do for me. Another way to do this uh, is, is actively carving out time for Sabbath. Uh, it's, it's no secret that our world is trying to define us completely based off of what we do. Actively cultivating times where you, where you stop from work to spend time with God is a way to reject that lie that you are what you do, and it's a way for you to say what is most important in my life is not for me to be a human doing, but to be a human being, to cultivate a life with God because that's what I'm headed for. Like stopping work to turn your attention towards God and rest in Him, it's given us foretaste and glimpses of our future life and our future hope with Him. Practices like this, they help us reorient our focus on faithful eschatology, on our hope in God. And that matters because rightly believing in this hope actually changes the way that you and I live right now. Because look again at what he says in verses 12 and 13 when he says, When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, if we live like this world is it, when you are persecuted, when you are reviled, what do you do? You revile back. When you're persecuted, you don't endure that. You fight back. 
When you're slandered, you slander back and you one-up them to let them know that they shouldn't mess with you. But understanding that this life isn't it frees us up to look like Jesus, to uh, endure and to entreat when we are not treated well. And this will be a witness to the world because I'll just be honest, I've never walked into someone's house and seen 1 Corinthians 4.13 hung up and framed on their wall. You know, welcome to our house. We're the scum of the world, the trash of all things. I've never seen a leadership conference hyped up this way. Come to our conference. We'll teach you how to be mocked and misunderstood and persecuted and have people look at you like the trash of the world and the scum of all things. But this is what a Christian leader is supposed to look like to the world, like Jesus. Like, like I'm, I'm sorry to say, this is the Christian life. You should expect to endure suffering. You should expect to be mistreated and mocked and misunderstood and slandered. You're not going to be able to sustain that without a hope in the resurrection that Jesus has purchased for us. And so we focus on believing faithful eschatology because our hope that Jesus wins and we win in him, it empowers us to live like Jesus right now. That moves us to the final thing that Paul calls us to focus on as leaders in this passage. We should focus on being spiritual fathers and mothers. Look at verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So even though Paul was being sarcastic with them, he was really not trying to shame them. He was trying to get them to see how their lives were not in step with the truth of the gospel. He was holding up a mirror to show them their foolishness so that he could call them to something better. Because Paul is their spiritual father. I mean, he planted this church in Corinth. Many of the Corinthians came to faith through his preaching. He's played an integral role in their spiritual lives and in their spiritual growth. And when he says, you know, guys, you have countless guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers, and I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, he's holding out something important for us, which is that we need more than just teachers. We need models. We need examples. We need spiritual mothers and fathers if we're going to be able to live out the Christian life itself. And because so much of our learning is caught, not taught. I mean, you realize that, right? Like, like so much of our learning is us just following the example of our role models and people that we really look up to and want to emulate. Parents, I'm sure you've had that day where you kind of woke up and realized, oh my gosh, this kid literally does and says everything that I do and say. They do that because that's how they learn, right? They model what they're doing after what you do and say, but the reality is we really don't grow out of that as we get older. We we really never grow to a place of not needing models, not needing examples and pictures of how we're supposed to live and what the Christian life looks like. I mean, you even see this here in the letter. These Corinthians, they don't know how to act. They're all junked up on their beliefs. But Paul doesn't just write a letter to blast them and correct their false teaching. He also holds himself out as an example. Paul's saying, hey, okay, I know you don't know how to follow Jesus yet, and that's okay, Follow me and I'll show you the way. I will be an example to you. 
I've sent you Timothy before I could get back to you to give you another example and model and picture of my life and of my teaching of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I hear me. We need models, not just teachers. We need examples. You and I, we're going to hit a ceiling on our spiritual growth if what we're doing right now is all we're doing in the church. The church is a family which means that we need spiritual mothers and fathers if we're going to be all that God has called us to be. And so I want to challenge you. If you want to be a Christian leader, I want to challenge you to focus on being a spiritual mother or spiritual father to others here in the church. If you've been following Jesus for any length of time, I'm sure there's somebody here who's been following Jesus for less amount of time who you could have an influence on. And listen to me, you don't have to be a professional theologian. Like, yeah, theology is important. We want you to grow in it. But this is primarily about bringing people into your life so that you can be an example to them of how to walk out the truths of the gospel. Because if discipleship, if helping other people follow Jesus, if it's just something that you have to add to your schedule, you're never going to do it. The busyness of life is always going to push it out. But you're really not being called to add something to your schedule here Uh, You're being called to invite people into the normal rhythms and patterns of your life so that you can be an example of how to follow Jesus to them. I'll just give you a real specific and concrete example right now. I don't know if you've realized this, but we're having another wave uh, of people uh, having babies and becoming uh, mothers and fathers for the first time here in the church. Like parents of older kids in here, like we We desperately need to be around your dinner table watching how you interact with your kids, how you pray with them before bedtime, how you talk about Jesus with them. We need those models. We've got quite a few people who are newlyweds here who would so benefit from some of you who have got years of experience. They would so benefit from just getting to be around your dinner table and watch how you interact with your spouse, how you apologize to them when you sin against them. Like they would so benefit from that. And I'll just go ahead and take a guess that you're going to be eating at some point this week. It, it does not add something to your schedule to invite somebody else into that. And, and it's not just married couples and parents who need this. This is all of us, whether we're single, uh, married, parents, not parents, teenagers, adults. Like we all just need examples of how to follow Jesus and what it looks like in normal, everyday life. And the church is the place where we're supposed to find those. The church is the place where that's supposed to happen. So we desperately need you. Like, I'm talking to you right now. I'm not talking to somebody else. I'm talking to you. We desperately need you to step into this and to say, I'm going to help other people follow Jesus here. I'm not going to leave them on their own. Like, making disciples, it's not the call of God just on pastors' lives. It's the call of God on every Christian's life. Like, God is calling you to this. And and if you're his follower, he's given you the spirit of God. You are equipped for this. You can do this. You can invite people into your life so that you can be an example and a witness of what it looks like to follow Jesus to them. Look at where Paul moves next in the text as he closes out here in verse 18. He says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? 
boom, roasted, right? I mean, Paul really kind of switches up his tone here, and he begins to address those in the church who are specifically causing this division in the church, and he says they're arrogant. They're acting like Paul is not going to come back, and they're talking smack about him in his absence while he's gone, but Paul says he is going to come back, and he's going to find out not about the talk of these people, but about their power, because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Now, when Paul says this, he is not saying that he's going to come and get in a fist fight with them. Uh, to quote from that esteemed theologian, Jay-Z, uh, he's not saying, hey, you guys, you know these guys. They're the type that are loud as a motorbike but wouldn't bust a grape in a fruit fight. And uh, we're going to come, and I'm going to throw hands with them, and I'm going to put them in their place. That, that's not what he's saying. I mean, think about how he has used the word power up to this point in the letter. He, he's talking about the power of the cross. The power of the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified to forgive our sins and raised from the dead to change our lives forever. That's the power he's talking about. And so what Paul is saying is that these arrogant people who are trying to get the Corinthians to follow the ways of the world and the status and wisdom of the world, these arrogant people that you guys are so obsessed with because they're charismatic speakers, I'm going to come and expose them and show that all their talk is just a bunch of hot air, that it's meaningless, that it actually hasn't done anything to change your lives and make you love Jesus and look more like Jesus. The kingdom of God is about Jesus transforming people's lives through the power of his gospel, and I'm going to come and show that they've been doing the exact opposite of that. And all that Paul's saying here, it still relates back to what he just said about being their father in Jesus through the gospel. Because if people are going to continue to walk in ways that are contrary to Jesus, Paul, out of love, is going to have to discipline them and call them back. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week in 1 Corinthians 5 when he has a real frank discussion about church discipline. I'm not going to say that it's going to be fun. Uh, it's going to be something, so come on back for that. Uh, but uh, in the same way that you grabbing your kid before they run out into the street to get hit by a car is an act of love, even if they don't feel like it's very loving or if they don't appreciate that in that moment, uh, discipline is an act of love because it warns us away and calls us back from what's going to destroy us. And notice here in the text, Paul doesn't want to have to do this. He wants to be able to come in love with the spirit of gentleness but if the Corinthians are going to keep giving themselves over to what's going to destroy them, then, then he's not afraid out of love to exercise discipline and, and call them back to Jesus. And because he's being a father to them. Because this is what Christian leaders, what you and I are called to focus on. We're called to focus on being faithful stewards of the gospel message that God has entrusted to us because he is the one who will evaluate our faithfulness. We're called to believe faithful eschatology because believing in our future hope in Jesus changes the way we live right now, and we're called to focus on being spiritual mothers and fathers so that people here in the church would have an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Like, listen, this is stuff to focus on. This is stuff to get up every day and give your life to, to focus on being a faithful steward of the gospel with your life and with your teaching. We desperately need it. Let me pray that we would. God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for um, the, the truth of the gospel message that has freed us up to focus not on what others think of us or what we even think of ourselves, uh, but to be chiefly concerned with what you think of us 
You are the one who will evaluate our faithfulness. And so, God, I pray we would give ourselves to it. I pray we would give ourselves to pursuing faithfulness to you each and every day of our lives. God, would you do that among us as a church? God, would you give us the grace when it is so countercultural in a, in a place and a culture that is so affluent and so comfortable, would you give us the grace to live counterculturally in a way that shows the world that our hope is not in this world, our hope is in you? And God, would you give us the grace to raise up spiritual mothers and fathers here in this church? God, I thank you that as I look around this morning, that I can see so many men and women who have stepped into this and who have already answered this call and who are serving in this way in your church. But God, I pray for more. I pray that all of us would take the call that you have placed on our lives to make disciples of all nations and that we would step into it. Would you give us the grace to do so? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.